Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk about purpose with inspiring people making a positive impact with their lives. We are particularly interested in social enterprises and entrepreneurs. We will listen to them reflect on their journeys and take time to dig deeper in order to better understand what really motivates their choices. Hi everyone, this is Stephen Moe, and I'm glad you could join me for this episode because we get the chance to speak with Andrew Bell, who's the executive director of the Fred Hollows Foundation. And in this episode, we're going to hear about his childhood growing up in South Africa during the time of apartheid, as well as what the Fred Hollows Foundation is doing today. Here's an excerpt of the interview with Andrew. So Fred becomes famous um, and becomes made um, Australian of the Year in 1990 because um, of this work that he did in Australia, which is not bad for a kid from Dunedin, <laughs> you know, if you think of that. And recently we campaigned, they were looking for a new iconic image to put on their $5 note. And the Foundation of Australia and New Zealand campaigned vigorously to have Fred on the $5 note um, because uh, it would have just been the ultimate to have a, this New Zealander yeah. on the $5 note. <laughs> and he's famous because the, the call to, to funding for the Fred Hollows Foundation is $25. We'll give someone back their sight. Um, and that started out as five fathers for Fred. So give me five fathers, he said, and I'll give them back their sight. And so having wow. Fred's image on, the, we didn't get it done. Yeah. But having Fred on the $5 note would have been great. A nice symmetry there. Yeah. Because on our $5 note is Ed, Ed Hillary, and Ed and Fred became friends. It's a lovely story of them meeting because they shared this love of mountain climbing. Ah. And they met on the glacier down in South Island and became firm friends because they shared this love for Nepal. Huh. And so Ed and Fred, and uh, Sir Ed was actually uh, the first patron of the foundation. Wow. And we've got this lovely black and white image of Ed and Fred hanging in the office. Now, in the next episode, we're going to be speaking with Marcel from the Tumanaco Wellness Center. And this is a new initiative which has a Pledge Me campaign kicking off at around the time that we'll release that episode. We have a fascinating conversation about the state of mental health in New Zealand, but also discuss her career as a film director and the influence that her grandfather had on her choosing that as a profession. It's a really deep and insightful interview, and I hope you can join me for it. Now let's get into the interview with Andrew. All right, so it's a pleasure to welcome Andrew Bell from the Fred Hollows Foundation New Zealand. Thank you so much for having me. No problem. Thank you for joining me. Um, it's great to, to have you on the podcast. I'm really interested in the Fred Hollows Foundation and finding out a bit more about, um, I guess, Fred Hollows himself and mm. his life and what he was doing and how you're continuing to, to push that vision and that mission. But with this podcast, what I do is I also want to understand you <laughs> and understand your perspective and what's brought you to the place you're at. So it'd be great if we could just think um, back to the start of your life and just talk us through where do you come from and um, what life was like for you um, as a child. Wow, thank you. Well, uh, by my accent, there won't be any surprise that I'm from South Africa, born and raised. Uh, I was born on the East Coast, just south of the city of Durban in a tiny little town called if you say it in the anglicized way, Tweeny in Zulu, it's Tweeny, which translates roughly as the place of the round stone, the Umbogot, that the Zulus use to crush the maize meal with, as they use a round stone. Hmm. And uh, we lived there because there was the, a big explosives factory uh, that had been started by what the British company now known as ICI, which was AECI, in African Explosives and Chemical Industries. And my father worked there and it was making explosives for the 
the mining industry for which uh, South Africa is so famous. Mm. So I grew up in a, in a small coastal town. Um, I'm a child of apartheid is the easiest way for me to describe it to, mm. to listeners. Uh, and I had a very privileged and fantastic childhood and upbringing. Uh, mm. lovely, loving, caring parents, uh, youngest child of four. And my siblings say that I got the best years of my parents. So, uh, in every way, <laughs> they've gotten used to it by then. Having yeah, children that's right. <laughs> yeah, they've got good at it. So, uh, yeah. So, in every way, I had a, a very privileged upbringing. Um, just that, went to the that, local state school, so yeah, nothing too flash. And that that childhood, obviously, you know, apartheid is something that. Well, what was it like for you growing up? Is this something that you're conscious of as a child, or, or how does it permeate, you know, your your awareness of the world? I, I don't think I was aware of it uh, growing up. Certainly retrospectively, when I look back at it, you can see the signs. But you know, the apartheid regime was, was fantastically efficient at what it did. Um, it's, not, it's not an exaggeration to say they even built motorways to avoid the squatter camps so that people driving down the motorway wouldn't see the, the, the impoverishment of the majority of the people. Um, and I tell the story about how in 1976 my parents took me to the UK on a holiday and uh, there was British television which we were watching and uh, the Sharpville Soweto riots were happening in 1976 and these were on television and I distinctly remember my father sitting there um, saying this is unbelievable I mean the country's in flames we have no knowledge of this um, and went back uh, to South Africa and said to his workmates you know, what about all these rights? And they said, what rights? There was literally no knowledge because the media was completely clamped down by the regime. And I remember him saying, you see, it's typical of the British media, they exaggerate everything because no one knew what was happening, um, you know, 800 kilometers away because mm. the media just wasn't allowed to report it. Mm. So the apartheid regime was very efficient with what it did. Mm. Um, and as a, as a, uh, I hate saying the word white, but that's what the terminology was. As a white South African male, I was conscripted into the military. And uh, you either went to the, to the military for two years, to the army for two years, or to jail for four years. It was a simple, straightforward <laughs> <laughs> choice that they offered. Um, so the majority of us took, took the army option. Um, and I spent two years, I was trained uh, for a year, and then I spent a year in what is called the operational area, uh, uh, we were getting. If you didn't, if you didn't go to the operational area, you got paid two rand a day, which would be, oh, I don't know, twenty New Zealand cents or something. Um, and if you went to the operational area, you got four rand a day, um, because of the danger you were in. And I was posted to a place called Katimo Molilo, in the eastern Caprivi. Now, if anyone knows a map of Africa, what was Southwest Africa in those days has got this bit of colonial madness, this strip of land across the top, I think it's the Belgians felt, uh, that separates Zambia and Angola from Botswana. And I was put at the end of that for a year. Hmm. Um, came back from there and... So this is age, what, 18? Like you 18, finished 90, high school? I just, right. I just so turned 20 young. when I was demobbed. Okay. So return, pretty, pretty messed up. Um, I mean, just think about it, that it's a government policy to turn all your 18-year-old males into killers. It's a, it's a f ridiculous policy for a government to have, but that's what they did. So mm. um, even to this day, people often say, oh, South Africans are quite aggressive. And if they're from my era, I can explain why. <laughs> um, and came back pretty, pretty messed up. And for some reason, 
decided university was a good idea. Now, my academic track record to that point would have <laughs> indicated that wasn't the greatest decision I ever made in my life, but it, it was a great decision. And I went to a liberal university, the University of Natal, and for the first time confronted apartheid mm. um, in its reality because it was one of the first universities that was admitting black students. Um, and there were student movements and there were boycotts and there were student um, activ- action and student activists and uh, decided to study humanities and so fell into the anthropology department which and the sociology department and these which were at the forefront of trying to, to expose the regime for what it was. I mean, that was, that was pretty confrontational uh, to have come back and to have been identified. You were identified that you had been in the military, so there was this divide between the students who hadn't been yet and the students who had been. And Yeah, that was that was pretty formative mm. time in my life, to be it frank. It sounds like it, yeah. <laughs> so you must have faced many, um, many thoughts about who am I, where do I fit, yeah. what's actually going on here. Yeah. Um, and was it studying anthropology and sociology? Was that what really open that door for you to explore? Yeah, I, I, I mean, my mates who were studying engineering were sort of like isolated from it because they went and studied engineering and spent their time in a lab. But you, up in the, in the humanities and the uh, part of the university, the liberal part of the university, you, you couldn't escape it. It was in your right. face every day. And so you had to work out where you, you, did you fit and did you participate or didn't you? Were you, because the, the army that was brought in to, to quell the student action were just guys like you a year before it could have been you. Right. <laughs> now suddenly you're on the other side of the fence. You're the one with the placard, potentially. You know? Yeah. So where did you fit? And I mean, the army shot people. They didn't, you know, they didn't like people writing. It wasn't. It was frowned upon by the regime. So they, they, you'd be imprisoned or whatever. So there was there was significant risk to participating mm. in the student action. Um, and so it was very confusing as to what and. Uh, you know, my parents would be saying, just put your head down and start studying. You know, you've already given up two years of your life. You're already two years behind, you know. Right. There's no need to get involved. But uh, just the other day, we uh, we had friends over to our house, and uh, my, uh, we look after my 88-year-old mum at home. And um, this, this friend of ours engaged my mum in conversation and uh, said something like, so what was Andrew like? And I was quite surprised that she said, oh, well, he always wanted to take care of the poor. And it's, it's quite strange to hear that coming from your mother. I don't know why it's strange to hear it coming from your mother, but it is. And I think that's what happened at university. Um, if, if I try to boil it down to, so what changed is that I became very, very conscious of the poor mm. and of the privilege that I had enjoyed mm-hmm. as a child of apartheid and having been born with a white skin, not a black skin. Mm. And is that something that changed where you can identify a particular event or period within the studies? Or was it kind of a gradual awareness that grew and then it just became part of who you were? Uh, I frame the question that way because sometimes people, when I talk to them, they can actually point to, I remember it was a sunny day Mm -hmm. and I'd just been to the shops and then I had this conversation and my life changed, you know, Mm -hmm. like it's an Mm -hmm. event. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm just curious if it was something like that for you or if it was more of a gradual unfolding of awareness that things weren't right or that Mm -hmm. you might Mm -hmm. have a different reaction. So, uh, 
like I say, when I got back, I was pretty messed up, and most of us were. And uh, one of the things that the regime did to keep their military satisfied was they allowed them to drink. And so we all were pretty heavy drinkers. And, of course, when we came back and demobbed, well, we went and celebrated. And um, I can remember, you know, um, it's meeting down in town every Friday, Saturday night, which would not be uncommon to many people's experience of their 20s, their early 20s, and being at university. You have, I mean, university parties are legendary, mm-hmm. even in New Zealand. Um, and, uh, but my sister was a very uh, committed Christian at a local church. And uh, she um, was conspiring to get me to, uh, to leave these ways of mine, this, this messed up right, brother who had just returned yeah. from the military and <laughs> the he needed help. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he needed to be, to be helped. And she, of course, she thought the church was a, a great... So she conspired against me and they were running a, a youth camp. And uh, she got the youth leader to phone me and say that he was desperately in need of some leaders to help lead the young people and would, would there any chance I'd be willing to go along. Now, frankly, I was the last person <laughs> she should be invited along to influence <laughs> Come young and minds. Be a leader. <laughs> um, and it was on that weekend at a, at a camp uh, in the Midlands of Natal that I confronted myself, right. I think. Mm-hmm. And uh, through the, the gospel of, of Jesus Christ and the way it was presented in a very quiet way, there weren't any bells or whistles or whatever, but this, I had this moment in this beautiful place to say, uh, I wanted it to be different. Hmm. And not only my own life in terms of what I gave my life to, but I wanted the world to be a different place. And I wanted to add my, my small effort to the effort of millions hmm. to make the world a better place. And so I found um, in the church, which had managed, because it was a, a national Christian government, um, the government couldn't get over their own theology of prosecuting the church. Right. So the church was actually one of the greatest a- action movements within South Africa hmm. that was allowed to flourish because it was the church. Um, and so my desire to do something uh, could find expression in the life of the church. So it became a vehicle for that um, outworking yeah. of this decision or this faith decision actually to have an impact on society as well. Yes, gave it a framework in which so right. when you're confused and you, you, you've got this feeling that you need to do something about it, as my mum says, you always wanted to do something for the poor. So you want to do something, but yeah. you're 20 years of age and you're pretty messed up in your head. So yeah. you've got to find something that puts a framework around it and says, well, if you want to do good, he has a couple of options of how good is done. Mm. Mm. And then within a liberal university where you're receiving edu- a good education, um, you can wind those things all together and um, sort of decide that you want to do something for good mm. and find a way forward. So what expression did that take for you then, in, in given the context of where you were with apartheid and, mm. and what you were studying? Um, what outworking did it have? Uh, so the outworking that it had was I started to be uh, to be a leader in the church um, amongst young people, I started to find a way to bring my natural talents to bear within the life of the church. And uh, um, I did my, my third year research project was um, into uh, the Zulu people. I could have chosen industrial anthropology or any other area, but I decided to embed myself within the Zulu culture. 
to understand. So the Zulu nation is a kingdom mm. uh, that is the area of KwaZulu-Natal, as it's now known, is the, where the Zulu kingdom traditionally has always been. And so they were the local Nguni tribe for the area of South Africa that I grew up in. Right. So I decided to immerse myself in Zulu culture and to really understand these people mm. and who they were and how did I befriend them and how did I become part of, of understanding who, who should have been my neighbors. Mm. So that was the first thing was to, to deepen my understanding. Mm. So um, can we just unpack that a little uh, bit? Sure. Because that actually fascinates me just to have brought your perspective and your background. And these were people who were from the area that you also had grown up in. Um, what were some of the things that you learned about them as you embarked on that you know, research and study? How did you go about that? And, and what were some of the key things? The, the, the key thing is that you've got to understand them as a kingdom. So they've got a king and a kingdom. And they, they, they were one of the, the tribal groups that tried to engage with the apartheid regime in the most formal way because they had an understanding of who they were. And so when you spoke to a Zulu about somebody coming to take Zululand, they would say that's impossible. It's Zululand. Mm. Um, and so the, their perspective of being people of the land, and we talk about that a lot in uh, New mm -hmm. Zealand about the Tangata Whenua. Yeah. Um, it, it's, it's, it's very overt in Zulu culture um, that they are the people of Zululand. Um, and harks back to the, uh, some people might have heard of King Shaka, who's the famous Zulu leader, who at the time of the British Empire, Shaka was the one who defeated the British. Um, you know, they have this reference point of this great leader mm -hmm. and this dynasty of kings. Mm -hmm. And so they, they held themselves together as a nation. Um, and unfortunately, it had some fairly sinister outworkings in that when, when there were riots in the mines, for example, the Zulus were a very warlike tribe. So they would just gather together as an impi, is the Zulu word, mm -hmm. for an army. And they would, like that, they would have an impi form and they'll go, take out whoever was causing them trouble. Right. Um, so they're very warlike, but a very statuesque and proud nation. Mm. And so the folly of apartheid became really real to me, was you say, yeah, you've got a kingdom of people who have owned this land for all time, and you're now having a debate about whether you're going to give it back to them when they don't believe they ever gave it up. Right. <laughs> it was always ours. Yeah, it's always ours, yeah. and it's always going to be ours. And, yeah. and so, you know, what nonsense are you talking? Mm. Um, whereas for some of the other tribes, that they weren't as held together with the structure. Um, so, yeah, so they, they were very interesting. Um, and from a Christian point of view, they had converted... Um, you couldn't say 100% conversion, but a very, very high conversion rate because when the early missionaries came, the Zulus always believed in Nkulunkul, which means the big, big one. So they always believed that out there somewhere was Nkulunkul. And when the first missionaries came, they said, oh, yeah, Nkulunkul, we had a son, his name was Jesus. And they converted. They said, oh, that makes sense. Hmm. So whereas uh, it was a very interesting, one of a few examples in, in mission history where the missionaries actually also... Um, under, try to understand the culture rather than bringing something from outside and you know, superimposing it upon the culture that existed. The first thing they did was listen mm. and say, well, what is your understanding? And then uh, wove the gospel into the traditional understanding in a very mm. clever way. And they still are. It's, it's, the church is still incredibly powerful within Zulu, the Zulu kingdom. Mm. 
Yeah. Oh, that's fascinating. There's a, this is a complete diversion, but there's a Marvel movie called The Black Panther, which uh-huh. just came out recently, and they talk in there about the kingdom of Wakanda, uh-huh. and it's all this um, mythology about this kingdom in Africa that got a certain type of um, asteroid or something uh-huh. that, that means that they're far more advanced than the rest of, actually the rest of the world, <laughs> uh-huh. that they have this technology and things. And I wonder if some of the concepts of what they were trying to do was to say, because they talk about, we are the kingdom of Wakanda, you know, uh, and, yeah. and um, yeah, it's just interesting to think they were probably looking maybe at the, king, uh, the Zulu like kingdom that, yeah. or something. Yeah. I don't yeah. know the yeah. sources, but yeah. yeah, it's an aside. So so let's just talk through, um, obviously, we're here in New Zealand now. Mm. <laughs> it's quite different. Um, what Talk us through how you ended up coming here and... Um, yeah, what, what led to that change from South Africa to, sure. to New Zealand? So my path took me to um, a graduated university, worked for a year in industry, and then uh, uh, decided to candidate for, for the ministry, for the formal ordained ministry within the Methodist Church, mm. um, and uh, trained uh, for six years as a minister and was ordained, um, and then chose to return to Zululand um, to... Uh, a small place called Ishawe, and uh, Zulu is a very Omatepaic language, and so mm. Ishawe is the, the sound of the wind blowing through the forest, Ishawe, right. Ishawe. Wow. Um, yeah, I can hear that in some of the other words that you've been using oh, right. as well. Yeah, it's interesting. And so it's, um, it's a very iconic place, um, and this was at the end of 1993, and the election, the first democratic election was 94, and there was a uh, it had been identified as if if the war if a war was going to break out in South Africa it was going to break out in Zululand it was going to break out in Shawi because you have got this very very militant proud nation that is right. warring against everything that's going on um, and a division of the South African military were in the in the um, the, the, the the agricultural uh, place where they used to have agricultural shows the showgrounds of the okay. town so you've got yeah. a division of the military armored cars picture you know, to contain. And I was a young, oh, what was I, 28 years old or something, 29 years old, newly ordained minister, gets dropped into the middle of this. <laughs> so it was a fairly formative experience. Yeah. <laughs> um, and we went through the election. I was part of a, uh, so the church was very involved in election monitoring and election education before the election. And uh, it, what, a, what an experience to have. Uh, some New Zealanders were across at the time. Um, and then we won the 1995, was it 95 World Rugby World Cup? And everybody said, you know, nothing could stop South Africa. Beat New Zealand in the final, and you know, the Rainbow Nation was on its way. Um, but there, I always think that let's just say 10% of any population immigrates or travels. Mm. There had been this this pent up because South Africans weren't allowed to travel anywhere because of the embargoes against South Africa. There was this pent up diaspora. And so around about 1996, I'm 30, just turned 31 or something around about that age, you know, mm-hmm. there's just this, people are just going. It's just this excitement. The world is that off. So it's been interpreted subsequently that, you know, all the, the white flight and everyone took off. And I think there's truth to that. Uh, well, there's definitely truth to that. But for many of us, it was just a case of there's this big white world out there. Let's go. And... Uh, to backtrack in the story, my father's uh, oldest sister and younger brother immigrated to New Zealand in 1960. So for all my life, I had these cousins in New Zealand. And so for some reason, well, I think that is the reason that when we said, well, should we go? It was New Zealand. 
It wasn't Australia. It wasn't Canada. It was, it was New Zealand. There was some natural connection yeah, there that's, already. That's why we were coming here. Yeah. And it was the same for my sister. She came as well. Mm. Um, and so uh, I had no idea that there was a, a minister shortage in New Zealand at the time. And back in those days, I sent a fax. It predates <laughs> the internet and all the rest. And uh, I tell the story that within 28 days, I had a firm job offer. And so uh, when, when your life is... is uh, uh, when, when your faith system says that God ordains and lays a path before you, you take it that that's God's will, that you would you would you would follow that path. This is unbelievable that this has just this opportunity has just opened up for you. So this must be God's will for your life is how you you understand it. And uh, uh, being being a minister, you didn't have many possessions. You you lived in a church house, and you know you. Half your house was furnished by the church, so we didn't have, whereas other people have great big assets to sort wound up, we were very nimble. Right. So we just packed the kids up. We had two children by that stage. I'm married to Angela, who's a teacher by training, and Casey and Nathan are our children. And they were just young, three and 14 months, and uh, we came to this place called New Zealand for two years, and uh, we're still here 22 years later. Oh, that's interesting. It's amazing, isn't it? It doesn't give technology and faxes. And, <laughs> <laughs> and before that, you know, sending a letter, take yeah, a couple of weeks telegram. to hear back. And, yeah, that's yeah, right. Yeah. These days we're so into instant technology. Like, yeah. I, I want to talk to somebody right now. Yeah. <laughs> and it has to happen. Set up the, set up the Skype call or whatever. Yeah, I've, yeah. I've noticed people apologize if they haven't responded to an email within 24 hours, you know, as if yeah. somehow it's late, that's been delayed. Yeah. Their response, yeah. yeah. Those days, and because of the time delay, we were, would be waking up at 3 a.m. in the morning with a fax machine going and with excitement, you'd jump out of bed right. to see what the fax said from New Zealand. Yeah. So do you remember getting that fax saying there's yeah. a job here? Yeah. Yeah, it was a very, um, well, because you just, you just, didn't think it was going to happen that quick. I mean, there right. was this, you know, like I say, this excitement. People, oh, well, why don't we try New Zealand, you know? And so you send off a fax and you, I mean, you know, off it goes and where's it going to land up type of thing. And uh, mm. so, yeah, there was great excitement that, that this was happening. And then, of course, you have to tell your family, you know. Mm. And, and were you telling them we're going for two years and we'll be back? Or were you, did you have a... Yeah. Yeah, right. It was, I, I really wanted to finish my master's degree. And so it was very wound up and wanted to have a master's degree that was beyond a New Zealand, a South African university. And so it was all wound up in trying to get into, into theological college in, at Auckland University to finish my master's. That didn't eventuate. Mm. I finished it up at Otago mm. some years later. But uh, there was, it was wound up in my academic desires to study and to study abroad so that I could get a, a broader perspective because I'd had so much opportunity within New Zealand. By that stage, I'd finished a... Th a third degree, mm. so I'd had all this, but it was very South African in terms of its ori academic orientation, so I wanted to break out of that. So mm. it was all part of my formation as a minister. Mm -hmm. And so yes, there was no sense that we were gonna stay in New Zealand. It was all about going to finish off a master's degree and then returning. And getting a different perspective and, and, then, on, and then coming back. Yeah. So I guess when you're saying goodbye to people at that point, it's more like, oh, we'll be gone, but it's only 24 months. We'll see you soon, you yeah. know, but actually 22 years has gone by. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. It often happens that way, doesn't it? We went on, uh, my wife and I went on a two-year OE that became 11 years, <laughs> you know, like, whoa, <laughs> time, has, time has slipped by. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So um, now you're involved with the Fred Hollows Foundation. Mm. Um, just talk us through the years from when you arrived in New Zealand and then um, taking on that position. You mentioned some study, and I guess mm. you, were, you were a minister at that time as well, were mm. you? Or? 
Yes, I've worked as a minister in New Zealand. I had a small congregation out at Teatatu in West Auckland for two years, and uh, then I was successful in an application to become a chaplain at St. Kentigan College in Pakaranga, uh, which I had five uh, fantastic years of ministry amongst young men, uh, as it was. Uh, and then, uh, again, just a serendipitous uh, event, uh, the church the Presbyterian Church by that stage, I'd, had to, I'd transferred to become a Presbyterian minister so I could work at the college because it was a Presbyterian college and there's a reciprocity agreement between the two, con- uh, the two denominations. Um, and the two denominations, Methodist and Presbyterian, had uh, separated out their international work and they, um, they advertised for someone to start a new international office called the Global Mission Office. And uh, I remember Angela looking at the advert and said, oh, you'll get that. <laughs> um, and I applied, but I actually was so I was so happy with school chaplaincy. In fact, I started another master's degree in education because I thought edu- I'd found my niche in life. I was going to become this educator, hmm. um, which is important for the Fred Hollow story. Sure, I had this uh, educator background, um, so I didn't actually put much effort into the interview because I was actually was happy. Hmm. So you sort of like, oh, I'll go along and see what it's all about. And I can remember leaving the interview and going, buying a cup of coffee and thinking, oh, I wish I'd, actually, I wish I'd worked a bit harder. Put that a bit because, more effort into that one. Because it's <laughs> going to be a great job. I'm really going to be sad that I don't get it. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, uh, again, I was fortunate to be successful and so um, had this real uh, call back to where it all started, the story of Natal University and the humanities and discovering the Zulu people and mm. uh, cultural anthropology and then having studied missiology in Africa, um, which was the gr- a great still f- um, subject which has been lost in some, many Western countries had been lost, but missiology was still a, a, an academic formal under a famous professor, David Bosch, was the leader of it. And so it was this, almost this call back to my roots, but within New Zealand. So now it was looking at the same world, but sitting in New Zealand as a, a, a developed, wealthy, westernized country, mm. um, and looking back at where I'd come from. Right. And that was, that was incredibly exciting. Mm. Um, so I decided to, to leave school chaplaincy um, and to take on this job where I jokingly say, well, they gave me... Uh, a borrowed desk, a broken chair, a laptop, and a budget, and said, go save the world. And no one, I just, it was, I had the freedom to do it my way. Right. It was just an amazing opportunity. Yeah. And what were some of the key things that you learned through that? Well, it all leads into the Fred Hollow story, because uh, it was a typical aid and development, which you would see in many big com- big charities like World Vision or Tear Fund, uh, Caritas, any of the big, the big ones. Um, we're, we're often defined by, by um, uh, aid that is just meeting an immediate need, and it's small scale. So I, I refer to it as being paper thin. So we were, you know, saving street children in, in Cambodia, or we were uh, getting young prostitutes off the streets in Thailand, or we had a well digging project in Kenya, or we had a school in Zambia, or yeah. These so we would boast that we worked in 15 countries, but it mm. was you know a single high school in India. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, in terms of scale, it wasn't sure. that big, but it sounded great. Yeah. Um, you know, we were giving scholarships to students from Myanmar, and so it, uh, 
the beauty of it was it was this huge spread of ge geography. I was learning and able to travel to represent the church to places I would never have gone to otherwise. So it yeah. was a huge privilege. But in the end, what, how much of a difference were you making? Mm. The contrast with the Fred Hollows Foundation is the Fred Hollows Foundation actually only does one thing, mm. and that's it's all about restoring, eliminating avoidable blindness, restoring sight. Mm. So just to unpack that a little bit, because mm. I think it is important, and I think um, you know when you think about organizations that go overseas or even within New Zealand or whatever, oftentimes it does feel to me like we're getting out Band-Aids to put on a problem and that there's not enough focus on what caused the, the problem as well. Was, that, was there a little bit of that as well? or Because um, sometimes I think charities and organizations exist and they exist for a hundred years and they're still there. Like, isn't, wouldn't it be better if we actually were able to fix the underlying issues which lead to the problem which we're then helping to alleviate but not ultimately solving? If you know, give up. I mean, what's your take on that? Having been involved in that sector, and, and we might need another podcast for that. <laughs> one. <laughs> it's a small topic. Come on. <laughs> well, yeah, I think you 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 striking at the heart of it, which is um, a whole mixture of factors. Uh, one of which is appeasement of donors. So you have to continually talk about the need to get people to give you the money to be able to go and do the work you do. Mm. And of course, you, you don't really, even though you might say you want to work yourself out of a job, in fact, you don't, mm. because it's your job. Right. It's what you do. Yep. So, um, yeah, the very notion that you would fix the problem <laughs> um, might not be the most compelling strategy. So you'll say that, and you'll say it repeatedly. Um, but in my experience, there's not a huge majority of charities that are doing the work in the way the Fred Hollis Foundation does, which is about strengthening the local system yeah. in a genuine way. People will do that. I mean, education will educate people and we'll send them back. But often we almost uh, don't allow them to become independent and to be able to do it their way. Mm. Um, there, there are some interesting cases where it's happening now where there are... Uh, uh, and maybe it's putting the charity sector at risk, the international NGO sector at risk, where, where uh, foundations and philanthropists are saying, no, I just want to invest in the local level. Mm. Um, take out this, this middle, this organization sure. in the middle. Yep. And the big the challenge for the international NGOs is to, is to articulate very clearly the expertise that they bring to the relationship. Otherwise, why wouldn't Bill and Melinda Gates say, well, we, can, <laughs> we don't need you, we're just going to go straight to the source mm. and we're going to buy the expertise that we need on the ground. So uh, there's definitely a change afoot in the charity sector uh, for the very reason that you identify, is mm. that um, we, we've, for 100 years, not cut the umbilical cord. We've mm. kept them, for all the best of intentions in the world, we've kept them dependent on aid. Mm. Um, and so not built a resilience and, a, and an ability to get on and do it themselves. Mm. And in the converse, you find, especially in the micro-enterprise zone mm. um, of work, you find amazing examples of where just given $200, you know, a paltry amount of money, a local person can make a huge difference mm. to their life and to their community. Mm. Uh, and it will be highly, the, you know, most micro-enterprise organizations have got a repayment rate 
of 96 to 98 percent, which would there would be no commercial bank that could claim a default rate of two percent. Mm. So you know they they incredibly successful as models. So we actually have these models within the international development sector that. Um, that show that it can be done, mm. but because uh, you've got Muhammad Yunus, of course, who yeah. came to New Zealand last year, I think, oh, yeah. and did a few speaking tours. Oh, and I missed yeah, that yeah, way. he was really. Uh, he came to Christchurch, so I was able to hear okay. him, and it was really interesting to hear his thoughts about oh. empowering, because his focus is on women, particularly uh-huh. empowering the women uh-huh. who then take the money, like you say, and then with literally, you know, fifty dollars or two hundred mm. or whatever they they can affect change in a way that is sustainable. So, yeah, it's challenging. I guess the, the, the image or the picture that people sometimes talk about is teaching someone to fish rather than yeah. giving them uh, a fish, uh, right? Is it's that one of Fred's favorite sayings. Oh, is it? Back okay. in the 80s, yeah. Yeah, yeah right, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, well, and apparently, I mean, historically, apparently the change happened, you, if you look at it, the Boxing Day tsunami yeah. was the event, the global event, and probably lined up with social media. I haven't actually checked whether that's true, but it probably does line up with you know, the advent of social media and all this, mm. was for the first time that um, people started questioning the role of the international NGO right. in, in the recovery. And mm. so it stems back to that, that there's been this growing movement away, and the international NGOs have been struggling to find their place in the world. Mm. Um, and the, the relevance people have been increasingly questioning and so then in New Zealand we've got this phenomenon where there's just a breakout of small uh, charities doing and three quarters of them work in New Zealand only but you know this rash of people t- mm. trying to do good on their own yeah um, yeah I think the number is 28,000 registered charities at the moment isn't it and it's over 100,000 actual charities yeah 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 because yeah, yeah. 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 anyone can start a charity you know yeah. so you know the cancer being the best example where I think there's over 40 Mm. Uh, uh, cancer charities in New Zealand Mm. Um, yeah yeah I'm involved in a conference at the end of this month in Wellington Um, we're recording this in April and one of the sessions that we're going to talk about is are there too many charities in New Zealand oh wow and um, you know it should be quite an interesting discussion but to what extent do you get replication where you've got a charity that already exists somebody else has the same idea Mm. and starts up their own charity and then they're competing in a way for the same funds whereas maybe should come alongside and help the already existing charity. I don't know. It's a big topic. I want to move on a little bit to the Fred Hollows because we've kind of got there already. Um, Can you just tell us a little bit, just the background to Fred Hollows himself, um, just for those who are listening who may not have Mm. um, know the story? So Fred was born in 1929, uh, a son of a a train driver, born in Dunedin in the South Island of New Zealand. Um, but in the early years, he, he started his primary schooling there, but uh, when he was about seven, his father was transferred up to Palmerston North in the North Island, bottom part of the North Island. Mm. And that's where he, he was, finished his education, went to Palmerston North Boys High School, who still every year have a Fred Hollows Day and remember the great alma mater. Um, and Fred uh, was, very, um, was very shaped by the Church of Christ, his family to this day of, very uh, um, foundation and strong members and uh, foundational, what's the right word, uh, mm. community-minded people who belong to the Churches of Christ. So Fred actually uh, went to Otago University to study at the seminary. Um, and uh, for whatever reason, he decided that was short-lived. Um, and he finished his BA at Victoria University and then went back to med school. Mm. 
trained as a doctor. Um, and there's no doubt in the social activist who becomes famous that those Christian roots were very formative. There's no way you can escape it, even though Fred, by the end of his uh, career, was an was a out-and-out atheist and, and did not believe in God and vocally said so. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think you can deny that he was shaped by his Christian upbringing. Uh, and I've, I've actually had the privilege of meeting some of his colleagues from those days, um, and they tell a story of a, of a, of a, very, um, a very active Fred um, in terms of not only his Christianity, but in terms of what did the gospel mean to someone who was also concerned about the poor, the world's poor, and about injustice. How, how did the gospel impact upon that? And so I think his, his, his lack of desire to continue with his seminary training was largely due to his, his, um, his concerns that the church was not actually fulfilling its mandate, and that by becoming a doctor, he, he would more likely fill, fulfill his mandate than he would as a church minister. Right. So he went to London to train as an ophthalmologist, and the, the, the course of events is a, is a little... Um, clouded no one quite seems to have it exactly pinned down but on his way back uh, some would say it as strongly as Fred feared that his social activism would get him into trouble in New Zealand now why it wouldn't have got him into trouble in Australia doesn't seem to make much sense but for whatever reason Fred decided New Zealand wasn't a receptive place for him and his brand of ophthalmology and so he went to Australia and in Australia he discovered Uh, indigenous health, Aboriginal health, as it was called back then, to be in incredibly dire straits. Um, It's one of the, you know, well-documented that Australia is embarrassed by how they have, as this incredibly wealthy country, left their Indigenous people behind in in every measure, uh, healthcare being the most obvious one. And Fred started doing these, what are called trachoma mapping camps. So you just drive out into the outback, and they would map. Now, trachoma is a it was an awful disease. It's a neglected tropical disease, is its technical term. And trachoma is, uh, the solution to trachoma is washing your face with clean water. Um, so it's a marker disease. It's a marker of poverty. If you've got endemic trachoma, you basically can guarantee you haven't got clean water for people to wash their faces. It means that they're sleeping in community, probably sharing bedclothes, sharing towels. Um, and so it's an infectious disease. It's a form of chlamydia, and it just reinfects and reinfects. And it affects the children from year zero to 14 years of age about, and it, it, they get reinfected and it actually scars the inside of the eyelid. And then in your 40s, just like any a scarring, the scarring shortens, and so it inverts the eyelid, and the lashes, your eyelashes, scratch the cornea, and you go permanently blind. Mm. It's a wicked disease. Mm. Fred discovered this to be endemic in rural Australia. And so he became this activist, this social activist, um, and, and started literally um, petitioning the government on the steps of parliament to say, this is an outrage. These people should not be blind. Mm. And what year are we talking about? We're is talking it? about the 70s. Okay. When he's, so this is the Cold War era as well. So th- uh, you know, this is the time of my life where I'm going to be this, this uh, pawn in a great Cold War um, up in Africa. Fred's yeah. starting to become this activist in Australia. So it's very, very interesting to map your own life, where you were at age mm. and stage compared to where Fred was at. Mm. Um, and they do these camps and they prove again and again to the government that it's chronic disease. It's not just a couple of pockets of it. This is chronic disease that exists to this day. Um, it's a very, very stubborn disease. It doesn't just disappear. Mm. Um, and because if you've got people going back to the same 
hard lives where there's no fresh water in arid outback Australia, it's not going to get solved. Mm. So Fred becomes famous um, and becomes made um, Australian of the Year in 1990 because um, of this work that he did in Australia, which is not bad for a kid from Dunedin, <laughs> you know, if you think of that. And recently we campaigned, they were looking for a new iconic image to put on their $5 note. And the Foundation on Australia and New Zealand campaigned vigorously to have Fred on the $5 note um, because uh, it would have just been the ultimate to have a, this New Zealander yeah. on the $5 note. <laughs> and he's famous because the, the call to, to funding for the Fred Hollows Foundation is $25. We'll give someone back their sight. Um, and that started out as five fathers for Fred. So give me five fathers, he said, and I'll give them back their sight. And so having wow. Fred's image on, the, we didn't get it done. Yeah. But having Fred on the $5 note would have been great. A nice symmetry there. Yeah. Because on our $5 note is Ed, Ed Hillary, and mm. Ed and Fred became friends. It's a lovely story of them meeting because they shared this love of mountain climbing. Ah. And they met on the glacier down in South Island and became firm friends because they shared this love for Nepal. Huh. And so Ed and Fred, and uh, Sir Ed was actually uh, the first patron of the foundation. Wow. And we've got this lovely black and white image of Ed and Fred hanging in the office. So Fred kept on coming back to New Zealand. He never relinquished. And I think he had to take out New Zealand citizenship to become Australian of the Year. But he, his, his widow, Gabby, tells me he was a proud New Zealander to the day he died. Sure. So it's interesting becomes, just that uh, Edmund Hillary connection because um, I interviewed someone named Mark Prane who knew Edmund Hillary. Oh, okay. And so that's one of the earlier episodes where we talk about Ed Hillary and what he was like. So right. it's, it's, a, it's in these people, it's similar, similar lives, I guess, yeah. that, that really achieved amazing things. So it's, it's really nice to hear that they had a connection there as well. Yeah, yeah. As, uh, as iconic New Zealanders. Yeah. And, um, and I think it was a time when the world needed these sort of iconic leaders, you know, um, because of, of the, sort of like the counterbalance to the Cold War. I mean, there was plenty of things to get nervous about. You know, you, people were digging bunkers to escape the, the nuclear fallout that was it believed inevitable mm. to happen. And so mm. you had these other icons who were saying, oh, let's actually do good for the world. Yeah. But Fred, uh, that's, so that's the one reason why he became famous and became famous in, in this part of the world. But the other reason he became famous was because of the intraocular lens, which is, so cataract blindness is what causes um, most of the avoidable blindness in the world. And cataract is your lens in your eye goes hard. Now that happens to everyone. It's just a factor of getting old. In many traditional societies, they say when your hair goes white, your eyes go white. And mm. so that's, they see it as just being something that happens when you get old. The notion that someone will come along, poke around in your eye, and suddenly you can see again is, of course, a, it's the stuff of witch doctors and miracles. Mm. And so it's still, we, as a foundation, we refer to it as the miracle of sight. And uh, to cut a long story short, the first time that uh, doctors realized that a foreign body could be put in the eye and the eye wouldn't reject it was in the Second World War when the fighter pilots were getting shot up and returning with glass in their eyes. Ah. And so if you get a splinter and your, you know, your body swells up and it expels the splinter, yeah. they realized that the eye didn't. It, so it was the first time that doctors said, well, you can put something in the eye and it won't reject it. Track yeah. forward 20, 30 years and the Germans or the Europeans somewhere along the line have developed the intraocular lens and it costs $500. And Fred says the social activist now, highly energized you know, uh, activist on behalf of the poor of the world, says, well, the poor will never afford $500. Mm. And um, they say, well, tough luck, that's how much it costs. So he says, well, stuff you will build a factory. 
and we'll build it in Eritrea. Hmm. Now, why Eritrea? Well, he had just met an Eritrean. Uh, you know, Eritrea at the time was emerging from the flames. Uh, Fred visits and is impressed by the fact that they had started pharmaceutical factories underground. They literally dug caves, and the Eritreans very resourceful people. And so he says, well, we'll build one here. Right. And they developed this ingenious way of making these intraocular lens, which is this very, very precise mm. you know, technology. And they drive the price down to $2. Oh, my goodness. And so then people say, basically say, well, Fred, you just got lucky. He said, well, stuff you, we'll build another one in Nepal. And he did. And uh, to this day, um, they're both self-sustaining industries with very little support from mm. foundations like ourselves. Which gets back to the earlier part of the conversation, which is about cutting the umbilical cord. Yeah. And if you put these and give people the ability, the back to the give them a fishing rod rather than a fish, it's amazing what, what can be done and how ingenious and resourceful these people are. And so, you know, globalization, we talk about globalization, the shift of industry from America to, to China and, you know, because China can do it cheaper. Well, Fred proved that long ago. <laughs> that if you put it into a low-resource country, it's going to cost you less. Mm. And you can produce high quality. The foundation has done research repeatedly to prove that these lenses are as good as any other lens you can buy. Mm. You're not getting a compromised position because another standard of Fred's was every eye is an eye. So you know whether you're a pauper or whether you're a king, you deserve the best. Yeah. So he wasn't willing to say a substandard, well, this is okay for the developing world. Yeah. Fred said it has to be the best. Wow. So they are high-quality lens. Mm. And so th this was also driving to a surgical technique called a small incision cataract surgery. And so it's a manual technique that we still teach our ophthalmologists to this day. And the teaching of the ophthalmologist is the other important part, which gets back to my education, why mm. I felt like my life confluenced in the foundation, the work of the foundation, was because we, we're known publicly, if you see our media, we'll tell you about the aha moment when the patch comes off and this person who was blind maybe for 7, 8, 10, 12 years can suddenly see again, mm -hmm. um, the miracle of sight. Yeah. That's the good public messaging, and that's what people support with their $25 gifts and support us so generously. But the actual magic of the foundation is that we train doctors to be ophthalmologists, which is a four-year postgraduate master's degree, and nurses to be specialist mm -hmm. eye nurses, which is a one-year postgraduate diploma. Mm. So we, we're training Pacific Islanders to be the solution to the avoidable blindness epidemic in the Pacific. And we are setting them up. So the foundation does four things. It's a very straightforward foundation. We restore sites. So unashamedly, we've got doctors out there restoring sites. We train doctors and nurses. We build the health system because if you send them back to their country of origin, they usually go back to a broken health system that doesn't have the ability to, to, to drive advanced microsurgery. So we put in the infrastructure. And then we, it's one of the Fredisms as well. In fact, all four pillars are still the Fred model, is that we do research to ensure that what we're doing is right and what we're doing is the most effective and what we're doing is going to have lasting impact. Mm -hmm. So we, we, we self-assess ourselves the whole time to make sure that the method still, we can't say, well, it worked 20 years ago, it must still work now. We're mm -hmm. making sure that it's the best way of doing it. And then starting to confront additional disease like diabetic retinopathy with there's this this huge explosion of diabetes in the Pacific, where nine out of the 10 top incident countries in the world are in the Pacific region. So we've got this, what's often referred to as a diabetic tsunami or diabetes tsunami. So the ability of our surgeons is expanding to be able to treat with lasers and all the rest. Mm. But it's an enabling the Pacific Islanders 
to have the medical expertise to do the work, they can do it. Mm. Yeah, the word that came to my mind when you were talking was the word empowering. Mm. You know, that you're empowering people to then do something. And um, and I guess, it, in a way, this has been a fascinating conversation because we've touched so many different parts, but it comes back to that, the fish and the, and mm. the fishing rod and the actually enabling local people to, to get the, the solution, isn't it? And, and they... I'll, I'll personalize it to make the point is that uh, I'm an incredibly expensive traveler uh, I like a nice place to lay my head at night I like it to be clean um, I suffer from various illnesses that require that I take you know headache tablets with me and uh, clean water is my preferred type of water and <laughs> on and on it goes you know. because of our upbringing in, in developed countries we we need a certain level of comfort to survive. We, we don't even cope when planes are delayed by an hour because we have to sit in an airport. We complain about that on social media. Pacific Islanders working in the Pacific, just their footprint of what they need to be able to do the work that they do is, is just so much smaller. Mm. So we haven't sent an ophthalmologist from Australia or New Zealand to the Pacific in years mm. um, because our Pacific Island ophthalmologists are actually better at what they do. They often speak the local language which is a huge barrier when you're doing something that someone thinks is scary or magic, to be able to communicate with them in their local language mm. and comfort them and tell them mm. this is okay. And when they see one of someone like them, they might even know the doctor's mother or the, their family, mm. it's hugely comforting to them to say, well, I trust John right. to do the surgery. Yeah. Rather than the scary Australian or who New Zealander. Who is this guy who here? Who is this yeah. guy who's <laughs> come from outside? Yeah. So it's a it's a model that if you talk about sustainability, you know, mm. and the footprint that it requires is so much smaller. Um, and there's uh, Dr. Ruit, a Nepalese doctor who was Fred's protege and great mate. Mm. Uh, I mean, he deserves a Nobel Peace Prize uh, for the number of times he's climbed into the Himalayas without oxygen and without Sherpas and without. <laughs> <laughs> all that other stuff, and gone to a, a school and scrubbed out a classroom and restored sight. Yeah. As has Dr. John Situ, our equivalent in the Pacific Islands. Uh, he's gone to the most out-of-the-way places to restore mm. sight. Remarkable mm. ability mm. Um, to, because it's where they've grown up. This is, you're not asking them to do something extraordinary. Yeah, it's you're a natural place them for them. To go to another place yeah. in, their, in their home country. So yeah. Fred's legacy in terms of the work of his foundation um, is fantastic because it's all about empowering and genuinely looking to the day when we can work our way out of a job. Mm. Um, that would be the ultimate measure of success. Yeah, oh, that's great. Well, it's been fantastic to listen to you and hear about the story and also to hear your story and how it's kind Thank of woven interest, through. Yeah. yeah. Um, if people want to connect with what's going on, we haven't gone into many of the details, mm. but um, you know, if it, I, is the website the best way? Is that the That's certainly the easiest the way, you know, yeah. hollows.org.nz okay. would be the easiest way to just find the phone number and all those other contacts. Yeah. Um, just be aware that there's an Australian site and a New Zealand site. Just if you want to contact with the foundation in New Zealand, then mm. look for the one with the NZ at the end. And sure. if you want to the Australian foundation, then it's the one that's just .org. Um, is yeah. how you differentiate between the two. But uh, yeah, please do read, if nothing else, just read Fred's story because it's a story worth reading yeah. of someone who, against the odds, 
um, and despite, if I could just finish with one great story of his that I hope I'll retell it accurately, but it's my favorite story is that um, when, he was act when he was this activist in Australia, of course it's Cold War era, so they said, oh Fred, you're just a bloody communist, you know. So he apparently went and joined the Communist Party and came back and held his membership card in the air and said, I am a communist, but they still blind. Mm. What are you going to do about their blindness? Their blindness has got nothing to do with my, with my convictions. It's because they're blind. That's the issue. And so, you know, it's easy to deflect and say, oh, you'll hear it again and again. I'm never going to donate to charity because charities are inefficient or charities are... So it's an easy way to appease our consciences by blaming the charity for their inefficiencies or for the scandals that rock them every now and again. Mm. And so we get away with actually facing the poor and the, the problem of the poor. And in, in Christian and missiological lang language, the preferential option for the poor that Jesus spoke about, that we have a responsibility to focus on the poor of the world. That's, that's the question, not whether the charity is efficient. Mm. It's what's the plight of the poor yeah. and how do, we, how do we resolve that? Yeah, and everything else in a way becomes a distraction from exactly. the fact that yeah. there are people in need yeah. and what will we right do, now. what will you do, what will I do, what will the person listening to this yeah. do, do with their life and the privilege that they've had yeah. oftentimes not earned. I'm struggling. Yeah, <laughs> I, not earned. But you know, oftentimes you don't deserve it. Uh -huh. You know, where, where were we born? You, yeah. you described your childhood. Yeah. You didn't really, you know, you don't pick that type no. of thing, uh -huh. and yet you're given something that many people don't have access to. Exactly. So, yeah. yeah. Well, it's been great to talk Lovely with you, talk Andrew. With you, I really yeah. appreciate your time, and um, I hope it's given some people things to think about mm -hmm. you know that's ultimately what i want to do with this podcast so um yeah thanks thank very you much thank for you for the effort of broadcasting the stories uh, yeah. on behalf of all of us yeah. thank you no no problem yeah. thank you well i hope you were challenged by that conversation with andrew i initially thought we were going to be talking only about the fred hollows foundation but as is so often the case with this podcast we ended up talking about south africa apartheid the role of charities in the modern world it really went a number of different ways and i really loved it now in the next episode, we're going to be speaking with Marcel from the Tumanako Wellness Center. And we have a fascinating conversation about the state of mental health in New Zealand and the plans that she's got for this new way of approaching things. That episode is going to be released around the time that a Pledge Me campaign kicks off and they're trying to fundraise to see if this is an idea that might actually fly. Here's an excerpt of the interview with Marcel. It's a culmination of everything that I love. You know, the best literature, great music, fabulous photography, great art, fantastic ideas, you know, rigorous thought. All of those sorts of things that I really admire and that inspire me are encapsulated in the art form of great cinema. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what just, you know, really spun my wheels about it all. Mm. Well, I do hope you can join me for that and other upcoming episodes. And a reminder, this is one of dozens of interviews. So if you enjoyed what we talked about today, then you might want to check out one of the earlier episodes as well. Until next time.